0: Hi, this is Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large for MMNM, and welcome to the MMNM Marketers at Home podcast, where we discuss how healthcare marketers are adapting to the altered promotional landscape. And of all the marketers I've had the pleasure of hosting on this podcast over the last many moons, my special guest this week has one of the most unique perspectives. My guest this week is Veronica Chase, VP of Marketing at Eli Lilly. Veronica, or Ronnie as she's known among her colleagues, joined the marketing department at Lilly back in 2001, so she's had a broad perspective indeed. Hi, Ronnie, and welcome to Marketers at Home.
1: Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. We're thrilled to host you. Ronnie has launched some iconic brands, all of them mass market ones, for the most part, You know, during the industry's small molecule heyday. And we're going to speak about how the pandemic has affected the marketer's mission, if you will, in several areas, from new product planning and differentiation to customer engagement, data privacy, and more. Uh, but first, just a few housekeeping items, as we usually do on this podcast. Just a few of the most near-term activities for MMNM. In just a few days, MMNM's June Agency 100 issue is set to go live online. The digital content package will include the Top 100 Revenue Table, Agency Family Tree, a glimpse at this year's up-and-coming firms, and of course, the journalistic profiles themselves, all written by MMM staff with objectivity, rigor, and an eye toward differentiating these firms amongst the sea of otherwise homogeneous marketing companies. I'll be speaking with my fellow editors, Steve Madden and Larry Dobrell about that on next week's podcast. But in the meantime, be sure to register at our website for free so you can be ready for when the content drops on June 15th. And as always, you can find out more about our events and content at the all-new mmm-online.com. Okay, back to the interview with Ronnie. Just some of the backstory here. Several months ago, I got to reach out on behalf of Eli Lilly's oncology division with a pitch for an interview to learn more about how the pandemic has impacted R&D leadership efforts. And of course, I jumped at the chance. Uh, So yes, this one's been a long time coming. Ronnie, just to kind of get things started here, how how have you fared personally and professionally amidst the pandemic?
1: Hey, thanks for asking that. Um, I think that's a really important question that we do ask each other just personally. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Family's doing well. Friends are starting to pop back up into the scene. Um, So we're we're really getting back into the things that we enjoy. I hope you're doing the same, Mark.
0: Yes, thank you. Also, you know, uh, getting back into the swing of things, the things that we missed, that in-person contact, for sure.
1: I think one of the things, you know, through the fairing of it all, having the the privilege of working in healthcare and working for a company who jumped right in to try to help in any and every way possible. um, I couldn't be more proud of being part of, of an organization who's done that, both from what we've done on the medical side, but also what we've done on the community side. Um, I had the privilege through a phone call from our um, CEO one day saying early, a year ago, March, hey, um, I think we might run into some social distancing fatigue. What can we do here um, in our own local state, which is Indiana, uh, to help? So we partnered with the governor. Um, and put together a social distancing and wellness campaign called In This Together, I-N for Indiana, uh, but a, but something that really was relevant for, for anybody, no matter where you live, because we were all in it together, all the way through a awareness for vaccinations, although we don't provide a vaccination, uh, we know that vaccinations are our way out of a pandemic, and so uh, again, partnering with our local um, agencies here in Indiana and developing a campaign called Got My Shot. So now that you've got your shot, what does it mean to you? And how might that mean things to others who may be hesitant to to get a vaccination? And so it's just been really um, a fascinating time. So we've learned a lot. Um, We've weathered it as a family and friendship. And we've had the opportunity to impact at the community level, which has been really a, a, a once in a lifetime. I think many things for us through this pandemic have probably become a, a once in a lifetime, hopefully um, in, in some cases anyway, to do to do things differently. And some of those things we'll take forward with us, which I, I know we'll start talking about a little bit today.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, what, what a great opportunity, you know, uh, to utilize the industry's educational abilities, you know, and, and, and ability to stimulate demand, for public health in this crisis, uh, so that, that's great to hear the company's efforts uh, on behalf of the state. Earlier in your career, you were involved, as I mentioned earlier, in, in transforming the consumer marketing unit. Now you're in the oncology space and, and you work a lot with global affiliates to execute strategy. Uh, that's given you an interesting perspective on things too. Can you take us through your professional climb and, and describe your role today at Lilly?
1: Sure. Um, so so my background is not in marketing as it was um, first created. I'm, I'm an economist, so I, I have an undergraduate degree in economics and I have a master's degree in um, international business. Um, and so marketing kind of fell uh, onto me and, and me onto it right out of uh, my undergraduate uh, time working for a really small boutique agency who happened to win a, a piece of business for a really big health insurer um, called Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield. And so I was a marketing liaison um, trying to help them bring forward some of their benefits to their employee plans. So in part of my career before Lily, um, not only was I learning marketing by having to be scrappy at this small little agency, but also um, through that effort was recruited to work for one of these large payers um, and was a payer my, myself. Um, From there, I I missed agency. I I, I missed being um, required to be two steps ahead of your your clients um, and and what it is that they need because that's what they pay for. Um, They're not going to ask you to work on their business if they already know the answer. And so I went back to to agency and in that space um, helped um, the small firm become a, a larger firm thinking about business strategy. And how do you activate um, in a in a consumer way? And through that, came across a, an opportunity to bid on a piece of business at Eli Lilly & Company, um, which back in that day, it was Cialis before we knew it was Cialis. And coming out of that pitch, I'll never forget it. My, my partner and I looked at each other and said, we've we got to get this business. We want a part of it. We think it may be a competitor to Viagra. And at the time, Viagra was on par for brand awareness with Coke. And so who doesn't wanna to try to break into this new space and, and see what you've got there? So luckily we won that. Uh, we were able to come into Lilly and, and set some um, pre-launch environment shaping environment evolution type work for them. And then we're offered an opportunity to come into Lilly. And so we took that offer. And the reason I have stayed at Lilly for the last 20 years is Lilly has really allowed me to operate as a consultant within their walls. I've had the opportunity to be on the front edge of many of our transformation and even to the point of leading quite a bit of it as well. And so... I'm really excited to be now um, leading the marketing organization for our oncology division as this space is really booming. The competition is um, just coming out of everywhere. We've got more studies going on in this space, I think, than any other disease state, and some of them combined. And so bringing not only the transformation mindset, the ability to be agile, but also um, how do we always make sure that we're living on the principles of what make us good marketers, which are understanding our customers better than anybody in the space?
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard to think of a more important transformation oncology than the immuno-oncology wave uh, that, that was ushered in several years ago with the approval of Keytruda and how that has continued on. Um, and as you said, a real blossoming of, of R&D in, in the oncology space. Uh, let, love to hear more about that. You know, let, let's talk about you know, kind of hearkening back to your uh, economist training. Uh, I know you're kind of harnessing that in your current role in terms of uh, using real world evidence to inform products. Um, how much influence would you say you have as a marketer on differentiating such products um, with, you know, real world evidence?
1: Yeah. You know, as as a pharmaceutical marketing um, professional, you have a tremendous responsibility um, because you sit in a unique seat. You sit at this intersection of science and the markets that the customers live and work in. And as a member of a cross-functional team, your job is to ensure that you're infusing that marketplace and customer understanding all the way up in development. Um, And so that is a really important role that we play, uncovering and, and bringing forward some of those unmet needs are truly what then allow the cross-functional team, including our development partners and early phase uh, research, to improve lives, which is which is our mission. That's that's kind of why you ha- you got us at hello as marketers when we walk into the pharmaceutical industry. You want to you want to do things better for customers, no matter where you are as a marketer. But the opportunity to do that in a way that improves lives, um, we take that very very very. Um, Powerfully into what it is that we do every day. So that not only is the responsibility large, but what we're trying to do through that is create the differentiation. Because without that, you're really not bringing forward any any meaningful um, value in, in what it is that we know people need and want. So tap into those unmet needs and make sure that's coming through all the way through through your development. You know, you you mentioned real-world world evidence. Um, I am a big fan of this. I've had the opportunity to work with some really talented people throughout my career who understand um, this space really, really well and have made a difference in, in driving the value for our customers. I think it's a strategic lever. Um, I don't know that it's used widely in the industry, um, maybe as, as it could be. But, you know, if you think about what it really does, RWE, real-world evidence or data, can help us identify right populations for trial enrollment. It can illuminate current and future unmet needs to really drive clinical trial endpoints. We talk about things like patient-reported outcomes, as an example. And those data points can be differentiated in themselves at the regulatory conversation level, let alone when you get to the potential of those claims in a label that allow you to promote to them as well. I would also say if um, really done well and, and spent a lot of time to understand what's going on in the ecosystem, it can also create feed by which your trial enrollment can happen by knowing where the countries are with the, with the greatest prevalence. And then also under uncovering in those moments what might be some barriers in the ecosystem, whether it be, um, you know, a a diagnostic that may be new to the space or, um, you know, the way in which patients flow through a healthcare system. Knowing that can give opportunity ahead of a launch in a disease state way to help the entire ecosystem at the local level really um, get an opportunity to better advance patient care. So I'm just a big fan of, of all of the, the potential that can come when you do real world evidence and think about it as a strategy, part of your core brand strategy and not just a, maybe a way to get some data that helps you with um, a regulatory submission.
0: Sure, sure. And I think it's also a nice example of how um, we at MMM like to think of marketing, healthcare marketing writ large. It's not just, you know, take the product and leverage its differentiation points, whether that's safety and efficacy, but it's um, influencing uh, the label that you're handed, you know before approval, frankly, you know, as you said, you know inf- influencing the trial endpoints using patient reported outcomes data. Um, to better differentiate the product once it does arrive on, on the market. Um, because at that point, it's, it's kind of either too late, you know, to, to do that kind of work or you got to start a new trial. And, you know, the, the, the market today doesn't have a lot of uh, tolerance for me too products, you know, right, uh, with some exceptions, but, um, you know, as part of your new job and in, in new product planning, speaking more about that, uh, you're constantly observing and acting on customer needs, wants, and behaviors, of course, um, and, then, and then using that know-how to, to better uh, differentiate you know, the next product before it, it arrives. How has the global pandemic affected that mission, and how has it perhaps impacted Lilly's work around the world?
1: Yeah, you know what? Um, I think, like most, we've certainly had to find ways of doing things differently. Um, what I would say, though, is that um, we never lost sight of what was going to be important for us to understand, and we did find those way through it. In many ways, I think because you have to um, utilize maybe different mechanisms to gain the customer insight, different channels in which to do that, You know, the, the, um, the, the days of loving to be face-to-face um, through an ad board or even behind the, you know, the, the screen in a market research moment, we certainly didn't get to do those. Um, so we had to find other ways. And I think it heightens senses actually. When you have to um, rewire a traditional way by which you're trying to get information everything becomes a little bit more heightened and I think through that we might have listened a little bit harder um, or heard things um, in our ears a little bit differently you know one of the things that we did early on in the pandemic not knowing how long this was going to last but knowing it probably was wasn't going to be short is we immediately started doing uh, marketplace pulsing and listening to the marketplace. We did this globally, but but a lot of our data came out of the U.S. because it was easier for us to access and get very, very quickly. And through those pulses, we were able to identify some things that we might have known but didn't take action on. And some things that we didn't know that we needed to take action on. So, for example, one of the learnings that we'd always kind of dabbled in, we think we've dabbled in telehealth and our role in telehealth for about 10 years, that became a, 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 like a, a real clear, can't wait anymore, figure it out, and we need, we need to be part of this. Hmm. There are other things that we looked at and said, you know, what is our role and do we have a role? Are we the right people to play a role in helping patients interact with physicians? And so we we may need to understand how telehealth is gonna work, but are we gonna intercede at the moment of patient and, and physician? We are not, that is not our role. And so some of it was also just trying to decide where we should play and, and where we should go. But at the end of the day, everything that we did was still fairly intact with regard to the principle of always understanding our marketplace and our customers better than anyone. That's our principle by which we live. And if we get that right, we know that we may not be the right solve for everything that they need, but the places where we can and they welcome that, we wanna jump in very quickly there.
0: But like you say, knowing where not to engage is sometimes just as important as knowing where to engage, right? All right. And uh, speaking more about that or drilling more into that, how has the pandemic altered the way customers engage with pharma? What steps did Lilly Oncology take to maintain its customer connections?
1: Yeah, you know, in in the early stages, we respected space. And so we, um, we were there when the customer needed us, and we um, were very clear that we, were, we are here when you need us, but we know you have other things, because every, um, I think it's just about every profession of, of, of healthcare was immediately deployed um, to understand, assist, and, and help with the pandemic while they were still trying to carry their caseload um, of their patients and, and keep, keep all healthcare Uh, moving in the right direction. But, but I would say in the beginning, we took a, let us know how we can help you. But we know, you know, for example, walking into your office, number one is not going to be safe for um, anybody, um, your patients, yourself, or even our our employees. And we want to put safety first but we also wanna make sure that you have everything that you need. And so that ran its course in the beginning. And then I think everybody was kind of starting to get to a place where they were finding their groove in the balance of managing pandemic and managing um, care. And I think at that point in time, we started to bring back on um, things more in a virtual way. So through omni-channel engagement um, or through our medical affairs teammates who would get the direct call through the physician and, and what it is they need. And then as, you know, as we found um, where we are now, even today, we're stepping back into offices where physicians are willing um, to have that face-to-face uh, engagement. We kind of went through this, this cycle, but in each of this, the ways in which we processed through it, there were things that we knew we were going to leave behind and things that we needed to carry forward. So this concept of right time, right information, that's been a principle of Lily to our, to our uh, physician customer base. I think we've taken that to a whole nother level. I think we as a company have become um, more experienced and therefore more confident and therefore more willing to do things through omni-channel engagement, never losing sight of a personal interaction through the right sales force, medical affairs, leadership, whatever that might be. Um, but, you know, we hit a tipping point where now I think we have less conversation internally about which is more valuable and the right conversations that we should have been having about mix and meeting our customers' needs when they need when they need us.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. Uh, so it's more like... Uh, taking that, that shift from multi-channel marketing to omni-channel marketing, not to throw too much lingo out there, but, you know, really being considerate about the mix and making sure everything is is coordinated and not just being in multiple channels for the sake of, you know, being repetitive (laughs) and spring. And your company, as I understand it, was in the midst of a large transformation initiative in the U S when the pandemic hit, did that make it easier or harder to move quickly?
1: Yeah, you know, for, for some of the some of the points we just we just discussed and that it, it forced us to move faster through our transformation because um, many elements of that transformation were anchored in, you know, digital uh, engagements. And so I think I think in, in that case, it sped us up quite a bit and and that's exciting because when you're doing a large organizational change of which many people are are going through right now with you know capability adjustments as as markets and customers change you've got to always trans you know transition into ways that meet their needs and so this is ongoing and you know whether you're doing a large capability upgrade or you know a, a, an iterative one it's something that we all do i think in this case Um, we had a a few priorities that we really wanted to go from um, incubation to scale in our organization quickly, and, and pandemic forced that to happen. Now, I will also say some of those things, we probably could have benefited from being in the same room as we were building them, but surprisingly, How much work could get done in the virtual setting, um, we really did advance quite a bit on our goals of what we were trying to achieve through our capability upgrades and and advancements. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, good to hear.
0: You know, the fluidity of the situation and your ability to make the necessary adjustments underscores that need for marketers to, to remain nimble on their feet. And that's certainly something as you talk about things you leave behind and things you take forward. Can you talk about the importance of that kind of mindset and give us an example of a pre-launch asset perhaps where you shifted on the fly?
1: Yeah, sure. Part of, I think what, again, a lot of companies are trying to get to is really kind of a, a flexible or agile mindset that then, you know, really kind of plays itself out in the way you get work done. Through the agile approaches to getting a product um, campaign, you know, through a cycle and through an approval and to the market, and then being able to see how people are behaving against that and making very quick changes to the execution. I think that that is something that, you know, we're, we're doing um, and, and we're, we've gotten a lot better at it and we're, we're scaling that out a- across our organization. So this concept of agile is, is real, but it, it, it's not just a thing you do like a process improvement. It really does take the mindset of people to be willing to um, something that might have take 12 weeks because it, um, you know, we felt like it took that long to get through pro- approval processes, for example, to try to do in two weeks. Um, and do those in sprints and get the right people to the table and make those decisions so customers are not waiting. Um, and so we've, we've seen a lot in, in that play. We did actually launch um, a handful of products during, during the pandemic in a full virtual setting across our organization, not just, not just in oncology. And I think you know with that, some of the things that we've learned there is um, it is possible to ready a commercial and, and sales organization virtually. Um, some of that though, where you might have done those in large settings with a lot of breakout, you know, of these groups and you had to, you know, rent these huge huge places to accommodate um, the, the masses of that, that commercial organization. Um, using technology, which we had never used in this way before, took a lot of dry runs, a little bit of patience, and a lot of grace, but but we did it, um, and, and it, and it can be done. Some of that we will take forward with this. You can't replace the moment where everybody's together pre-launch and the energy in that room, but from a training perspective and getting everybody deep and what is gonna matter on how they think and talk and exchange on this clinical information and the benefit for the patient, a lot of that learning and a lot of the training that needs to be underneath of that probably can't be done in two to three day launch meeting anyway. It probably needs to be done in, in uh, you know, over a course of time and through many different mediums as we know how adult learning works. So I think there's there's quite a bit that we've taken away uh, from this as well. And then, and then, you know, virtual launch meetings and uh, thought leader engagement um, comes along with this too to help us do, um, you know, some of the video launches to the external environment and physician base and, um, you know, how we work with our with our payers in these moments too through contracting that's usually done across the table and you know now done in a, in, a, in a virtual moment, all of it changed. And I think we've got quite a few things that um, we know where value can be when we come together and when that's needed. And when maybe there's just an opportunity to go a little bit deeper and take the time to learn what's gonna be critically important to share in the marketplace.
0: Yeah, so shrinking the time from incubation to scale, uh, as well as becoming a lot more facile, you know, at those virtual launches, certainly, you know, important learnings. Were there any efforts that did not produce the desired results, but were helpful learning experiences nevertheless?
1: Yeah, I think um, in the beginning, (laughs) there were times where we should have just made the call instead of been hopeful. So um, for, for a couple of these brands that were getting ready to launch, and I'll go to the, to the launching brands as an example, we were too early in the pandemic. Nobody could see you know, where it was gonna be, but everybody was very hopeful. So we did, um, you know, we're gonna be live. Okay, we're not gonna be live. We're gonna be hybrid. Okay, we're not gonna be hybrid and we're gonna be all virtual, right? And we wasted a lot of energy, energy that could have been spent in in different directions, but we wouldn't have known, um, but we probably could have made that call. So so it's a little bit now of now that we know and we know what works, let's make the call and not try to do it all or hold out until the end. So again, if if you're going to do a launch meeting, know what works well live and know what you want to do virtually and, and just make that call and do it. Um, I I think also, too, some of the things that um, we learned through was the the balance of when customers do want and need you in the live setting versus when, you know, this could be done virtually. I think there were some customers that would have been more amenable um, to coming back to live meetings, maybe, maybe earlier where, you know, others were not. And so when you when you try to do what is best for the average, that's with good intention. But always knowing what your customers' needs are, and then also knowing and respecting your organizational policies to make sure that you get you get the customer what they need when they want it the way the way that they would like it. Um, and ensuring in this case safety of everybody involved. We took a broad approach to that. Um, there may have been some moments where we could have had some unique interactions with others, but I I think we made the right decision there um, because we were following the science and the data at the time. So I I don't regret those decisions, but I think it's always um, reflective to know that not everybody will be in the same space. And so that will be true when we come out of pandemic too. Some physicians are going to want to Uh, Or customers at large are going to want to interact in certain ways and how do you do that in a way that stays true to your policies and principles, but also meets the customer need when we start to get to more of these in of one um, ways in which we're engaging with our customers.
0: Sure. I was just speaking with somebody this morning. He was saying that he saw um, one of his clients just had a live, you know, product launch meeting once again. It wasn't in the, you know, the grand ballroom as it may have been uh, pre-pandemic. But you know, to your point, being able to offer customers uh, that that hybrid choice, if you will, you know, of, of attending live or being able to accommodate when they want to attend where they want to attend and how is certainly a key learning, it would seem.
1: I think one of the interesting things that we we do as companies right now, talk a lot about culture. How do you think about culture of your employees when we come back to maybe some hybrid approaches of of how we get work done, working in the office, working remote, and, and maybe having a bit more choice in that? We're being very, very mindful about inclusion in, in that approach to make sure that the, it is a culture of inclusion no matter where you sit. I think your, your point that you just made is a really good one to also think about that externally. So you may have um, meetings, uh, they may be as small as an ad board, or they may be as large as you know something that you're doing with a, with a, a large launch. How do you make sure that your customers are all inclusive and have the ability to be present in those moments when we may not all be exactly in the same place together will be the next challenge, I think, for marketers as uh, customers continue to branch apart a little bit more in their personal preferences.
0: Okay. Um, Back in April, um, Lily hired a, a chief digital and information officer from Apple, Diogo Rao, who is planning to succeed the great Artie Shah. Uh, who's been with the company, I I believe, a little longer than you, about 27 years. At the time, Lilly's CEO, David Ricks, noted that Raoul's hiring was with the intent to deepen our corporate-wide use of data analytics and machine learning and fully leverage the power of digital capabilities to enhance experiences and outcomes for people that use our medicines. And I wanted to ask you, where are the opportunities for pharma marketing to leverage data, AI, and machine learning to a greater extent in order to enhance experiences and outcomes for people?
1: Yes, um, you know we're, we're really excited about um, what it is that we're trying to accomplish and, and our new teammate um, that's going to help us help us get there. We've been on a bit of a journey um, with this already on the marketing side. And as we as we think about what has made us really really good at, at, as marketers and what I, I think is a differentiation um, for those marketers that do this well, is understanding your customer and the market that they live and work in, right? We've talked, we've talked about this for deeply understanding them, know them better than, than anybody else. But as part of knowing them better, we have oftentimes been quite reliant on the deep qualitative insight-based knowledge of our customers. And we need to continue to do that. Um, because that's where you really peel back the onion um, and, get, and get to know, um, you know, what, what makes people kind of get to the place where they're really willing to share what's going on. We now, though, through what we've been able to accomplish in some of the, what was multi-channel before, now omni-channel and getting to, um, whether it be, you know, content intelligence, the tagging of that content, et cetera. We have so much behavioral data and meaningful behavioral data than we've ever had before. And so bringing those two things together is going to be really important. I kind of liken a little bit of the, the behavioral data that we're getting now and, and seeing how people respond um, to what we put out there, kind of like running the RWE um, strategy that we talked about earlier, this, the deep, rich behavioral data provides insights in both how people will engage in customer engagement and execution, but also through that may give you understanding of, okay, so that's why the patient reported outcome is the way it is, because maybe the technology isn't where it is, or maybe the instruction isn't where it is, and how do we tweak those things again to just improve the outcome for the patient? And so I think, you know, we're on a path there. Um, I'm looking forward to, to seeing where we, where we go at, at the next level. But to me, it's the integration of that into what we know we do already well with insight-based understanding. The behavioral-based understanding will, will cause much more rich conversation throughout the strategy stream, I believe. The key there will be don't drown in it do the same thing that you've been doing as great marketers before, understand what matters, get to the essence and understand what is going to cause the greatest impact for the greatest good and go there. Because I think we could get really lost um, in the reams and and amounts of data that we have today.
0: And, you know, just, just from where I'm sitting on the MMM News Desk, I've observed over the last few years kind of industry coming to this realization that the one size fits all approach doesn't work from a behavioral perspective. Like not every patient is non-compliant because they forget, you know, or they have trouble planning, you know, their medication usage for the week. We've seen finally less of a dependence on simple reminder messaging and that kind of thing, and more of a willingness to experiment with all types of, you know, behavioral science based approaches, like engendering empathy amongst clinicians, you know, for a particular condition or, um, you know, getting at, you know, patient's attitudes about their condition and how that might impact their their willingness to take a medication. So to your point, that's a rich area to to, to mine for sure. Uh, And speaking of mining consumer insights, I just wanted to get, we have a couple more minutes. Just want to ask you a couple more things here and I'll let you go. Restrictions are coming to how advertisers can track consumers online. You know, we've heard the much Ballyhoo, death of the cookie. Uh, I'm not sure how much that applies in our neck of the woods in healthcare advertising. From what I hear, advertisers are not so reliant on the cookie, so um, it, it hasn't been as ballyhooed in this sector as others. But do the, do you think these changes will have a big impact on the on the marketer's mission? And you know, how should healthcare marketers prepare for this new era, you know, in uh, data privacy?
1: Yeah, um, you know, it, it's a good question. I've spent a lot of time listening to um, other industries and how they're thinking about it. I do think it it affects us in pharma marketing as well. Maybe not to the same degree um, as other industries, but it, but it will. Um, you know, honestly, I think it shifts the emphasis uh, to building and maintaining the direct interpersonal relationships with consumers who truly want to engage with us that's you know that's kind of the what what everybody's trying to get to is how do you get to the relationship where people are willing to exchange information with you and we know when they do we can actually improve on again all the way from strategy to execution and so that though is built on trust (laughs) and so um, trust is going to be paramount to, to um, get people to want to have that engaging, direct um, opportunity to, to share the information that you need to improve what it is we have to offer for them. I think, though, you know, first-party data strategies aren't, aren't new. Um, we anticipate there's going to be an, uh, you know, a resurgence of those, and the opt-in marketing solutions are going to grow as well. Um, that's gonna require more safeguarding of personal identifiable information. Um, but I think ultimately um, we've seen success in a number of spaces here. Uh, I think one of them for Pharma Marketer where we probably have seen it the most are those where we've deployed um, customer support programs. So it's an opt-in after you've already you know been um, received or prescribed a medicine, it gives you the opportunity to share information based on where you're at in your journey that then gives you um, tips and solutions and support that allows you to be um, as, as, as best as you can on, on your treatment and interventions that are again acceptable by pharma to to provide. And I think you know, going back to your AI, you know, some of these customer support programs are not run by pharmaceutical companies. They're run by, say, um, large health employers or maybe even some physician organizations. And you know, where you can get a direct then closed loop of the patient back to to the physician through some of the the AI or the automatic um, triggers to what you might want to do next to advance your own personal care through through your journey is is I think where things are going to be progressing. Um, But again, that's going to require trust in the system and, um, you know, controls that, that protect the identification of those individuals.
0: Okay. And just one last question for you, Ronnie. Um, I know in your, in your line of work, you deal with international affiliates, and I'm just wondering how you think the pandemic will affect the future of global marketing, if at all.
1: You know, I I think it has, affected um, marketing and in many ways, but I I can share with you three things that are on my mind. From a cultural and team perspective, the idea of embracing in-office and remote as a hybrid working model is going to be critical. Um, Many of my teams that are global by nature have learned to work well in different parts of the world. However, much of that is a bit of a workaround. So there's plenty of work we can do together, um, better when we are together and we've flown in or we've found, you know, key moments in the calendar to do that, I think things will change because over the last 16 months now, we found how to do those well. There will still be times when we need to come together. they will probably be lesser. So what's really important there is to figure out how we're going to bring together a team, keep a culture, keep everyone engaged so they feel present, even though they may not be co-located with everybody. Without that feeling of being on the team and having the engagement, it'll be hard to bring everything we need from everybody to the table. So we're gonna work hard um, and making sure that just because we're not together, that we're present with each other and making sure every voice is heard. So I know that'll be something that we'll need to work on. So I, I think that will be a change in how work gets done. From a strategic perspective, you know, setting a brand positioning and building a brand towards that North Star is critical for long-term success of a brand. Without it, we lose our direction and we fall short of the aspiration of what the brand promise could deliver. However, um, we're going to have to take a much more agile approach to how we build brands over time. And I think our way through that is to advantage ourselves in the decisions we have to make through the more robust analysis that we have of this more readily available data. Digital enables our customers to provide us more information. We know that we'll do that in, in ways that are appropriate. We talked about cookies before. We'll find our way around that through trusted relationships. But as we collect and analyze that data, that information, it will bring deeper level of understanding and it brings frequency by which we can make decisions, maybe even faster than we have before because the behavioral data is always rolling in. So I think the key here is to be quick with that data. Don't lose line of sight on what you think the promise for your brand could be, but make sure when you're looking at all this data, you're hearing through what matters and all of the volume now, the increasing volume of noise that we have. And lastly, from a customer experience perspective, digital will grow as the dominant form for customer engagement. It is now. Um, AI enablement will become more sophisticated, so we'll be able to, uh, again, react to our customers maybe a little bit more quickly on their needs. I think a space to watch here, um, which has been teetering, but I think it's, it's tipping now, is around visual and voice search um, as an expectation on how people get information. And as we know in healthcare, people are seeking information. These two new technologies are growing. Um, the, other, the other area that's growing is video content as the preferred delivery. So we've had a lot of flat static content through text-based and and that will still be there. The video is becoming increasing. I think it's been reported, I've seen it now in several different studies that nearly over 80% of the global internet traffic will come from video streaming um, by next year. And I think what's important here is we all know as marketers Is that customer expectations of experience does not differentiate amongst the industries. These expectations are going to be true for healthcare as well. And as it's been said over and over again, you're competing with the last best experience that your customers had.
0: Terrific. It really good note to end on in terms of how customer preferences are changing and, and everybody knows that, you know, but how do we respond to it using the tools at our disposal? So great stuff. Uh, okay. Well, I'm going to leave it there. Uh, I want to thank our guest, Ronnie Chase, once again, for joining us. It was a fascinating conversation. And uh, if you like this episode as much as I did, please give it a like. It really does help. And consider subscribing to the podcast wherever you get your audio programming and help others discover the show. This has been Mark Iskowitz for MMNM. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next time.